Welcome to the Logos of Experience and Truth podcast, where I unlock the mysteries of the beatific vision of God. This is the ancient yet ever-present path of discovering your inner freedom and unlimited potential to achieve your goals now. Check the episode description for a link to the podcast page at logosofexperienceandtruth.com where you can navigate this episode with time-stamped show notes. Let us begin. Welcome back to the mystical understandings of the Logos through experience and the quest for truth. Last time I got into a little bit of the interior Maya or the apparent illusory nature of the world we see within our mind and how this sort of dictates in a way that which we see outside as well. It's an interesting concept that I'll touch upon further here and there, of course, when it makes sense. But I just wanted to state the obvious that even if there is this aspect to our own internal and interior mental activity, it doesn't mean that we can simply shape the external world instantly in some sort of magical way. Like in that weird Dark City movie where the weird alien beings and the hero change and shape the world around them instantly through thought alone. Or like that spoon kid and his lesson to Neo in The Matrix. There is an aspect of this, of course, if you realize that right now is right now, and tomorrow is a dream, and today is the dream of yesterday. And thus what you think and set into motion today can come about tomorrow, since tomorrow doesn't actually exist yet, and so on and so forth. So again, there's the deeper level and layer of these types of thoughts and contemplations regarding these almost superhero-like powers of shaping reality. In particular, your reality, since in essence, by thinking a plan out today, for instance, it can come about tomorrow. There's just those caveats, and of course, the obvious as well, that you have to take the first step, and then the second, and then the third. It won't just happen with the snap of a finger, but as I've described with the phenomenon of synchronicity, when you do take the first step, there is an aspect of the universe that seems to respond, that you begin to see the world around you mold towards your intention due to your having taken that first step. This is that saying of when you take one step towards God, God takes a thousand towards you. Now, of course, Jesus does say that if you have faith, you can tell the mountain to move and it will move. So it's very interesting that Jesus does speak about this, even if it's both not directly the same concept and also extremely the same concept. Though obviously, if you think about it more deeply, Is he talking about an actual physical mountain that stands in front of you or the mountain in your mind that's blocking you? Either way, until you resolve for the change to occur, whether external or internal, until you believe that it will move, it will not move. So very interesting. I hadn't actually thought of this prior, so just in the thinking and outlining phase for this episode, I found the New Testament straight from the mouth of Jesus teaching and saying regarding the power of faith to move mountains as the equivalent to thought-shaping reality. As we've seen, though, mental-worldly thoughts of the mental-worldly conditioned mind are not actually the same as faith, so there is a deeper wisdom in revealing in Jesus' saying versus repetitive wishful thinking. I still don't quite understand how all of it works, of course. I'm not sure any deep diver into these mysteries fully understands it, but if I can try to describe it, there's some sort of base some sort of foundation to reality itself, that which the Creator, God, set into motion and is kind of like the original piece of marble an ancient sculptor got into his or her studio and then began carving out the intended figure from that marble. 
This is well attested to in other cultures is cosmological myths that there's some kind of stuff that the first deity or god uses to start creation and from there all emerges. So what I mean by this is that there's aspects to the external visible world that at first glance don't appear to be changeable. But if you think of what human beings have done with irrigation, water systems, tributaries, dams, and such things as that, at first glance, if we can place ourselves into the shoes of our ancestors that saw these sources of water and sought to extend their use across the land by digging ditches and such, my daughter is learning ancient Egypt right now, so I'm thinking of what they did to extend the reach of the Nile floodwaters, and then up to modern times, right, with the building of canals and such. At first glance, it doesn't seem like anything can be done with those aspects to the external, visible world of nature, and yet, again, with a plan, and then setting it into motion, the wonders that humanity has created and achieved have been achieved. It just takes time. The external manifestation takes time. It can take a billion years compared to the thought of it occurring in an instant inside of the mind. But there is that aspect of the little saying in that Field of Dreams movie of if you build it, he will come. Once you start, once you begin, once you get going, it's like the world bends around you, aids you, as well as testing you for certain, which is what seems to be lost on those that seek change and do not achieve it, that it requires sacrifice of some sort towards the achievement of your plan, your vision, your goal, hope, the desire. And as I'm thinking of the spoon kid in the Matrix, since mentioning that scene just opened up more connections in my head, exactly what he says is this process. It's not the spoon that moves, but yourself that does, your beliefs, your convictions, your will and determination to see whatever it is you've thought up through to completion. And any blocks are entirely your own and have more to do with what's inside of you versus anything outside of you. And when you dive deeper and deeper, the external visible world becomes the reflection of your internal world, the land of the subconscious informing your conscious mind. And if you can see it, your unconscious sending you hints as well, left and right and all around you, that you simply have to train yourself to see and notice. So I'll give you another example, at least of just how these sorts of things arise, but also how your involvement and having that internal awareness of being aware of what is occurring in your mind is how you're able to see such things as the phenomenon of synchronicity or the appearance of your thoughts shaping reality around you and your being able to notice it, which I suppose would be the essence of synchronicity, since all of that would be involved or required, I guess, in order to witness or experience such phenomenon. I've mentioned a few times I created a massive database of all my journal writings, going back to 2004, that I've stored and kept with me over the years. This is hundreds, thousands of entries and lines of text, millions of words. The program that I used couldn't even calculate it without crashing. The last time I tried a word count, it was at 1.7 million words, and that was before I went past the year 2013, and doesn't include my massive journal entry from 2004 to 2007, which alone has over a million words. I'm not trying to impress you with the number of words I've typed, just the number of individual entries I've written over the near two-decade time period, which you'll understand in a bit why. As I was going through and copy and pasting each separate entry into this database, I was rereading them when it seemed important to do so, when these mysteries we've been discussing felt like they were trying to come through in the writing and such things of that nature, since I'd actually never reread a single one of these journal entries, as I think I said in the last episode. I'd gone through several dozens of these during the day, and in one of them had come across some commentary I'd written down regarding the phoenix, that wondrous legendary bird of fire that engulfs itself in its own flame and is then reborn. 
There's lots of interesting things surrounding this symbol of how, for instance, Christ is the phoenix, etc. But on this day, what I'd written about was that I was feeling like the phoenix during the mini-revival I've mentioned I'd had around 2008 and 2009, with this journal entry occurring on July the 7th, 2009. Now, it's kind of funny, but even after almost six hours of podcasting across these eight episodes, I feel incredibly self-conscious and shy even reading you stuff from a journal entry I'd written over 11 years ago. When one is learning writing, you're taught never to share your first draft of anything you've written, so I'm feeling a little of that conditioned perception within me regarding this, literally exactly what I've been discussing over the past couple of episodes. But I'll give you a taste, since this, these are the types of thoughts and feelings I had during the long march through the desert of the soul. And as I said, it was like I'd entered into some sort of mini-revival And this journal entry was kind of like that springboard into that attempt of rebirth, feeling as if it were near or that it had come upon me, which again is the mystery of the phoenix itself. I'm realizing I'm feeling not at ease reading you this since it's unedited and raw. But if you've listened this far, I suppose it is more a matter of my trusting you than it is you trusting me. So here goes. What happens when the swirling spiral of rainbow bright colors finally meets the bottom concavity of an end, a soft-spoken hum from a lullaby sung from God to the newly born spirit, and a vision of life primordial without the fusion of flesh is granted past the black holes of our inner selves? Everything has a purpose. If not, why then existence in the perfect universe of vibrating sense, a pulsating resonance reverberating from the deep unseen places to the known cortex of our thoughts emerges like the phoenix from the buried ashes of a past life. The fallen rise. They rise because they must. They've been shoved down and are forced to get back up by any means necessary. I have fallen over the edge. I was pushed out of the airplane with a parachute and have been falling without believing that I had fallen. I've been the same as I was before the fall inside of my memories and thoughts, living as if the world around me weren't swirling down the drain into death. Death of the past has occurred. It is my job to accept this and to move forward. It is my job to pull the cord, accept where the wind will take me and land onto the world of the new and live. All it takes is acceptance. So it had felt like the mysteries of God were all around me and within me once more, that I had heard a calling and I was trying to listen to it but I was too distracted by all the distractions that surrounded me at the time, and I didn't move forward through the desert of the soul during this time period, but I was still trying to write about it. Now back to the present moment. After reading this journal entry, and later on that day, my kids wanted to watch their new remake of the Mulan movie. After we'd watched it, I tried to remember the original animated version if it featured the phoenix in it, but I'm pretty sure it didn't. It wasn't a symbol in that movie. I'm only saying this because I'm trying to illustrate that I wasn't unconsciously in some manner anticipating the phoenix symbol in this current live-action remake based on the symbol having appeared in the animated version. Because while watching it, my spidey sense began to tingle when the symbol of the phoenix began to appear and was discussed in the movie. Now let me try to break it down once more about why one has to question these things. What are the chances that on this day, this week, this month, that morning, I'd come across the exact journal entry I'd written 11 years prior, never having reread it up until that morning, which as I just stated, I'd write and I'd write over and over again, day after day, week after week, and would never go back and read a single one of these spiritual journal entries, since I never once thought that they were worth anything to anybody other than myself. 
and only began rereading them a few months ago in September and October of 2020 when I started creating this database. What are the chances that I'd come across that particular entry among the thousands that I have exactly on the day when my daughters would want to watch the Mulan movie and that the new Mulan movie would have added the symbol of the phoenix into it when the animated version didn't have it? Again, I'm sure a mathematician could figure the probability of that out and explode their calculator doing so, since when the number reaches infinity or is infinite, it can't possibly be random. And there's something else going on at the elemental foundational aspect to reality itself. Now, obviously, the other factor in this is that I had to be aware of what I'd read earlier in the day and then have the awareness to notice the apparent synchronization of the phoenix symbol I'd come across earlier in the morning within my own writing as I was recognizing it emerge in the form of the outside world that can come through the television and movies. And I only say that since not every person would remain conscious of what they may have read earlier in the day, nor have eyes and ears to keep watch for such signs, since the belief and or understanding of such daily wonders occurring doesn't even exist as a possibility in the mind of another, where for me, it's a daily reality. Then there's the deeper sense and knowledge and contemplation that once I noticed that I'd had two separate references to the phoenix in the same day, the contemplative question is then, why I'd had those two separate references to the phoenix, and what was the universe outside showing me and leading me towards contemplating and or understanding? Or more simply, what did I need to see and understand and learn about myself regarding the symbology of the phoenix and resurrection from the dead, rising from one's own ashes on this day along the narrow path? The answer to it is actually rather synchronous in itself to speak about since it references the previous episode about the true self, since this echoes the entire mystical side of who we are versus who we think we are versus who the world tries to tell us we are, and that Mulan wasn't her full potential so long as she wasn't Mulan and was instead pretending to be the male character she was pretending to be in the movie. So right there, a perfect example of this false and fallen self versus the true self that we've been examining. So even in the outlining of this episode, I hadn't planned on speaking about the phoenix or the experience while watching Mulan, yet the lesson in it matches up with the previous episode along with its continuation into this one. And that's the point of these types of experiences. It's Samuel Jackson's lines from Pulp Fiction when he's trying to explain to John Travolta's character why his mind has changed from the not-getting-shot incident in the beginning of the movie earlier in the day that happens at the end of the movie with Tarantino's always interesting time shifts in his movies. It doesn't matter if it was finding my wallet or my car keys, but God got involved, or something to that order that the character says. Then the question is, why do these interesting synchronous things occur, not just how awesome that they occur, or how do I make them occur more, but why, and what do they reveal about myself more than what do they reveal about the world around me. And when you contemplate like this again, it's those aspects of I see them because I see them because those walls and blocks that would prevent me from seeing and experiencing them have been shattered. And because I am changed, the world around me is changed, even if the world around me isn't changed. I'll keep coming back to more of these types of experiences as we dive deeper into the chronology of my walking the narrow path. Again, it's hard to know the exact manner in which this occurs since if it were true all the time that your thought can bring about instantly what you think you desire or not desire especially, 
then the world would probably be an utter hellhole considering all the negative thoughts that course through one's mind in a minute, let alone a day or a year or a century or over the millennia. So it doesn't apply to everything that occurs in the mind, and the nexus of this has to be rooted in something else like faith or the higher or elevated type of thought that isn't thought, just as Jesus alludes to, and just as I quoted in the last episode regarding the Tao that can be spoken or the Quran that can be read are not the true versions or forms of them. When I speak more in depth regarding law of attraction types of things, the fact or the fiction, and why you can't just say a million affirmations and expect it to produce a magical change in the world, since what else are affirmations in the modern form of a magical type of evocation or charm as the magicians of the past sold on every street corner in antiquity? There's something deeper that must occur for the law of attraction to actually work. And actually, when you say those affirmations a million times a day, the universe will literally put in front of your face exactly what you need to change or sacrifice, as I said, and do in order to move forward towards those goals. But again, one must be aware of the world within and without in order to see what is blocking oneself from realizing those affirmations, either realizing why saying them is nothing more than wishful thinking No different than the Christian or religious person that mutters a million prayers of want, hoping for one of those prayers to stick like a dart on a dartboard in that vending machine-ish idea of God, or realizing why the wishful thinking affirmations aren't really what you want because you don't actually know what you really want since you don't know who you truly are since who you truly are has been overshadowed by the conditioning world. And This is actually a nice transition into speaking more on the subject I really wanted to speak on after that tangent. I mean, I was hoping to move on to something else, but my mind is still being flooded with further explorations into this topic of the self. So hopefully I'm not boring any of you listeners, but when I sat down to start outlining this, I was instantly given an idea that continues a previous episode, and I have several different explorations into this idea in my database, so I figure it's a good launching pad to continue speaking about the self, since we've spent a considerable amount of time delving into this concept and or reality of the self, the quest for the true self, and that Jesus Christ represents the true self in the Gospels, that we are made in his image, for if Christ is the Lord eternal, the second person of the Trinity, the mind of God, through whom all things were made, then who else's image could we have been made in? And the searching for Christ is also the search for the true self within your own self, and vice versa. Since we were dancing upon the razor's edge of the Gospels being either purely fictional or entirely true, this brought up a more recent philosophical concept that I think helps to round out this exploration of the self just a little bit further. Since the true depth of the discussions regarding Christ as potentially representing your true self, and only your true self if Jesus is an entirely fictional and made-up character, or also representing the Logos, the Word, the Son of God, through whom the entire world and universe is made, Since all is made through the mind of God, in whose image mankind was made, and thus Christ would be both the true self and the Lord of all creation. The philosophical treatise is, of course, Pascal's Wager. If you're not familiar with it, I recommend looking it up, since there's all kinds of things on the internet regarding it. As usual, I won't even quote any of what exists online regarding it. The core idea is that one should behave as if God exists, since the possibility of eternal punishment outweighs any advantage of not believing. That's literally what shows up at the top of the Google search if you just type in Pascal's Wager. I know I've hinted at the experiences of damnation that I've had, so it's a little off track for me in my mind to discuss that here in this context, especially since, like I said, I'm not going to be using that idea as the basis for this discussion, but rather the conclusions we discussed in the previous episode. If Christ represents your true self, 
in the Gospels, and even if you don't believe in the Gospels as being true or factual or real in any visual modern attempt at a purely scientific objectified manner, which again is highly dubious since one cannot escape the subjectivity of their own mind, yet the Gospels, the story of Christ, being a purely allegorical reflection of the search and quest for one's own true self, would still be beneficial to follow and or understand even if one didn't believe that Jesus the Christ is also the Son of God and the Logos and all of those majestic titles that are due to him, because reading the text and understanding the symbology would still be rooted in the quest for and understanding of one's own internal, interior, personal, true self that does not require belief in the supernatural. Yet if real and true as the church is taught, informed by divine tradition, then the goal is still reached because the belief in Christ, belief in your true self, is still sought and or achieved. And then the flip side, if at death there is nothing more than this, which again, after quoting the law of the conservation of energy and after determining that our most probable true self is this internal neurological matrix of energy that flows within the brain and nervous system and somehow, somewhere in that contains the mind within it, this is also a highly dubious proposition. Then following Christ, seeking Christ, searching for Christ is still the search for one's own true inner self, even if all you believe in this self, this interior world in your own mind is entirely and solely being mortal. So let's examine this more in depth because I'm reading some of my notes over the past couple of years and it appears I've pondered upon this exact question, but not with this concept of the true self at the root of this wager in life. Way back in the first episode, I commented that the mystical experience is exactly what psychologists, neurologists, scientists say is not possible, the entering into the unconscious mind. So, continuing with Pascal's wager, let me add to it with this exact concept in the form of a question. Is the mystical experience nothing more than entering into the unconscious mind and thus isn't anything spiritual or supernatural and remains nothing more? and nothing greater than a strange, psychological, and only human experience that has nothing to do with spiritual ideas and especially not having to do with God. Now, I've already stated my stance on this, that when this experience does occur, and you are flooded with a million thoughts or are capable of seeing the stream of thoughts extending outward into what can only be termed eternity, Here's an example. Let's say you were standing on a cobblestone road and looking down at it, and each stone was a thought that looked like a television screen. And then you looked up the street, and each and every stone was the same. And then, that you were able to see the image in each stone simultaneously. That is what this experience is like. And there is some other presence there that helps you, guides you, directs you, shows you, even though you still have power and can choose to look at or not to look at, what it, this other presence, tries to show you, if that can make some sort of sense. So let's just toss that aside and say that this is nothing more than the entering into this aspect or part of the mind in this manner, and that what is perceived during this experience as some other sort of entity or intelligence or power is nothing more than the unconscious mind itself, or that which puts everything together in the mind, which again, I will explain during my damnation experiences, since in those experiences, it is the opposite, where everything is being torn apart inside of the mind instead of held together. But here's the point. Even if it's just a human experience, yet the biblical text, the mystical understandings surrounding them, and all other mystical texts in the world worth their weight in gold, going way far back into history, prehistory even, and into the shamanistic times, 
since the claims of these peoples being able to enter into these ecstatic states of mind and being extend well beyond known civilization and common or present religious experience. The point is that each and every single one of these people's teachings teach that one can take one's mind. If all that's happening is the conscious mind delving into this, the unconscious, these texts, practices, beliefs, somehow have the steps and guidance of how to enter into this state, place, location, beyond the conscious mind, beyond the subconscious mind, and into the unconscious mind. That in and of itself should be enough to sway at least the curious into following Pascal's wager to following Christ or belief in itself simply due to, once more, the historical, sociological fact and reality that all people across all time, all cultures, every continent, every civilization, that they have all spoken of this state of mental experience that can occur from these writings, practices, teachings that have been handed down across the ages, and not a single one, as far as I can perceive and have searched for and studied, not a single one hasn't spoken of some sort of presence, entity, beings, or being that was there that, for lack of a better word or idea, felt supremely greater compared to oneself when in its presence, yet also felt supremely familiar and a feeling of sameness or closeness or similarity and relationship in some way with this supremely exalted presence, that which has been called God. So in my opinion, just looking at that, even if we remove the supernatural elements entirely, that's a pretty stunning statement or reality or truth to the human experience, to humanity as a whole, since shamans in tribal societies without any of the accoutrements of civilized life have their own teachings and practices, whether drug-induced or not doesn't really matter, but even they have their paths and steps to find this doorway within to enter into this state of being, this mental experience of experiencing the unconscious or the totality of the mind at once, again, if all we're calling this is an entirely human experience. So I had written this as a hypothetical question to myself a couple years back after my sequence of mystical experience, end of 2018, beginning of 2019. Is the concept of God simply that idea that humans came up with that defines this most inner ancient part of the mind, body, soul, that most inner aspect that makes us human, and that it's simply an idea to denote this place within the mind, this beginning place, this ending place? this Alpha and Omega place, and that if you're able to reach this inner place, this sanctum of thought and emotions, from whence thought and emotions emerge, then one has simply achieved the fulfillment that this ancient idea and concept sought to create within the inquisitive seeker or believer, the experience of this inner sanctum where the beginning and the end of thought and emotion coexist. And since it's floating around in my head, I feel it necessary to state the obvious that this is not anthropomorphizing God in the childish sense. Since I read some comments somewhere from opponents that always like to say that we made God in our image with personality and things of that nature, what I've just described for you, hopefully you can see the difference between this and anthropomorphizing God, which, to be honest, has its benefits, since how else can we relate to this? And I'll give a hint, especially as to why the terms of father and son are used, at least in Christianity. The familiar terms are there specifically for our benefit to understand this relationship between creator and creation, since creator and creation may not be terms and ideas that are meaningful to every individual, but adopted son to the father of all means a lot to especially those of us like myself that again required the physician Jesus to heal the broken parts of ourselves, 
to reconcile all the wrongs done in life and, you know, are basically the prodigal son story. Now, there are some requirements to even reach this far into this possible entering into the unconscious, which again, even these are steps needed to be walked and mental blocks needed to be overcome. Obviously, one has to believe that this inner sanctum exists, meaning one has to know there is a goal in order to seek the goal. Again, even if we're still completely removing any and all traces of the supernatural and are only sticking to this concept of the truest or the most true inner self. Because if you understand where I'm going with this, we've already discussed how all the aspects of the body can't possibly be our true self, since even they operate almost entirely on their own. But once you start peeling away the layers of mental thoughts, the conscious mind, emotions and emotional thought, the subconscious mind, you reach a place, a door, a gateway into this inner sanctum of the temple within, symbolized by the inner sanctum of the external temple or the holiest of holies, since again, the search for the true inner self peels away any and all layers of false self that exists within the worldly mind and requires one dying to oneself in order to be reborn within oneself. Now, maybe seeking for your true self doesn't really mean anything to you, dear listener, or to anybody else in this modern world anymore. I really don't know. But there was nothing more important to me than the search for this. The meditation that we did a few episodes ago was part of that shedding away of any and all that was seen as possible and false self. There was more to that that I had to peel away, of course, far more depth to it than that. Which if you're meditating on such things now, I'm sure you've already seen and intuited for yourself by now. So that would be another belief or assumption that one has to have in order to seek this true inner self just as it would be needed to fall into following Pascal's wager. And again, all we're doing here is changing the word God for true inner self. You have to believe that there is such a thing within the depths of your mind and heart, in your thoughts. And when you soul, again, since we're trying to see this from a purely human secular point of view, though again, we've already determined that soul was simply the word for this most probable real self in the physical within us that the ancients determined and pictured, since pictured was exactly what they did, as some sort of luminous ball of light or energy that dwelt within. And it appears that science and neurology through fMRI-type brain scans have seen the exact same thing through technology, which is just an extension of the human mind, as the ancients saw with just the mind. So you have to believe in the depths of your mind and heart that there is something, some aspect of you within, that is the most you, the deepest, truest you, that you, that maybe you were as a child and it was somehow destroyed. Again, I don't want to bring in the Christ, but remember his teaching, you must be as little children, for the kingdom of heaven is filled with one such as these. Well, again, what's he referring to? That you've returned to some sort of dependency as adults, that you're learning any and everything you desire, that the world is once again a wonder to you? A little bit of all of that probably, but also children, if allowed, which is increasingly not being allowed in this politically correct American world, if children are allowed to be themselves, they will be themselves without question. They have no doubt in themselves about who they are because there's nothing that is running contrary or hijacking their mind and internal mental perceptions about themselves if their minds have been guarded just as their bodies have been guarded by their parents. The entirety of this is rooted in that question of what is your purpose or goal in life? Yet this concept runs much deeper than that because you can ask yourself, what is your purpose and goal in life and be presented with a million options and all you have to do is eeny meeny miny mo choose one and follow it and maybe you find happiness in life contentment maybe even wealth tremendous wealth 
But if deep down, deep in the confines of your mind, you still remain unsatisfied, then even if you gain the world, but lose your soul, what have you truly gained? Another of those awesome lines from Jesus. So that there is something within you, a truth, a desire, a goal, a purpose for your very existence that dwells inside of you, especially if you lost this knowledge and the vision of it somewhere along the path of life, in childhood usually, yet that it exists, number one, exists inside of you already, number two, and that even if you've lost or forgotten it, that you can find it again within yourself. This must also be something that you believe to be true in order to follow Pascal's wager and believe and behave and search for this inner true self within your own mind and heart as opposed to not believing as if this inner true self were real. Now, since I'm no atheist, I have no idea what they have to say about one's purpose or true inner self, separate from any supernatural type of idea. I don't think that they see human beings as some kind of pure automaton that simply responds to nature or goes with the flow or makes changes accordingly based entirely on the external pressures of the world. Though I guess that is sort of natural selection talk that just emerged unconsciously as I was thinking about this. So I don't know if they have ideas like this or not in regards to one's purpose since naturally, if they disagree with a creator, then they're bound to the concept of randomness generating this universe. And if randomness is at the beginning, then all is random and thus meaningless. The only way randomness can truly exist is if it was purposefully inserted into aspects of creation, giving like flavors to the experience of creation only if it was purposeful, at least in my mind. But if the universe began randomly, then all is random, including my very thoughts regarding randomness right now as I think and speak, both of which are as random as are you, dear listener, randomly deciding to randomly listen to this random podcast. So going deeper into this question of inner purpose, this is rooted in that question of what did you want to be when you grow up that children are always asked and teenagers forget and adults lament in the midlife crisis as they seek to find what was lost. In fact, at the end of my book, Lucifer Revealed, I even called this mystic narrow path walking the midlife crisis since at the time I was trying to find that secular concept and idea that could potentially denote aspects of this experience to a secular person even. Though as I stated previously, since I've been on this path since age 19, I'm not sure if the entirety of that concept pertains to the search for the true self in the secular or to the search for Christ in the religious sense. Though there are aspects to the idea of the midlife crisis that are of course found with this inner quest. But when I thought about this childhood question, I meditated entirely on it. What did I want to be when I grow up? What was the very first thing I could remember thinking to myself that I'd like to do or be? I will tell you what I found, what I remembered, for it is interesting, very interesting considering the entirety of the work I've been doing, the experiences that I've had, and the words emerging from my mouth right now as you listen. Now many things occurred at this age in life, and I'll recount to you further after my awakening experience what I remembered occurred around age 7 and 8, so 2nd and 3rd grade. And I think even science has determined that this is the age when the personality or memory system really starts to kick in for a child due to the bathing of neurons that the brain experiences around this age. And what's interesting again, just as many different ancient cultures and teachings said the same, that around 8 years old is when the mental capacities really start to kick in. And I'll toss this in here real quick since I just remembered this was something I'd also hypothesized and I'm currently keeping track of with my six-year-old since she's told me of her dreams 
and the images she's seen in her dreams. I've wondered at how the mind interprets these neurological changes and experiences occurring within the brain. It can't possibly not produce images as to what's occurring. So the neurology can see in an fMRI scan what is occurring physically. I've wondered, have they even asked the children being scanned what might be occurring mentally as well? Because I'll tell you something. I've already mentioned the vision itself, the symbol for the vision, though the depth that I will continue to reveal regarding that will only go deeper and deeper. But my daughter, in her funny little kid dreams she's had, has already seen and described the vision itself. So could these interior mystical type experience also merely be the mental imagery produced by the experience of these neurological happenings inside of the physical brain. I'll leave any of you secular science-minded persons with that since I have obviously considered that possibility, though as usual, the very interesting thing that the image produced by the mind, if this is the case, is still the exact same image that all peoples in all times across all cultures have produced as well, so this wouldn't be an external symbol that is being interpreted by the brain but something being produced internally. So as I was meditating on this, I remembered myself as an eight-year-old laying on the floor in my room in a condominium on Sentinella Street in Santa Monica that I lived in. I was in the closet, actually. For some reason, I couldn't quite remember why in the meditation. Halfway in the closet with my legs sticking out into the room as if reading what I was reading was a secret or something. I don't know. I'm actually thinking that little detail right now, to be honest. It's just talking about it is, you know, generating more insights into it. And I was flipping through a children's biblical book of stories that I had. And in the back of it, which would mean the book of Revelations, right, was Jesus mounted on a steed. I think it was even a Pegasus, so it had wings on it, just in case you don't know what a Pegasus is, I don't know. He was decked in glowing armor with a crown on his head, and the armies of heaven were ready for the final battle. And it was weird. I tried to tell myself during the meditation, even as my deeper mind protested that I needed to be honest with myself in very much the same way as I explained occurred during the ascension experience, that part of my mind didn't want to express the truth of that experience, that I wanted to stand alongside Christ in this final battle is what I told myself. But that wasn't what I thought as a child. I wanted to be Christ, just as I saw in this picture armored, sword in hand, leading the charge. Yet think about it, I was only eight years old. And since my parents weren't consistent churchgoers, along with being the Sunday-only churchgoer and never speaking about religious things beyond that 45-minute church experience, I didn't know a thing about Christianity other than the whole baby Jesus stuff at Christmas time, right? Like most kids. And I sure didn't know anything about the end days. I didn't know anything about any of that. I only knew that I believed in God at that time. And it was this something, this main thing, that was lost during the teenage years and recovered during the awakening experience, which again, I'll explain in further detail in the future. But this meditation revealed that I wanted to be Christ when I grew up, that as a child, that was what I thought I wanted to be. And again, very interesting again, considering the experiences I've had. So let's translate that without the supernatural again, Returning to Pascal's wager, if Christ is merely meant to represent your true self, I wanted to be myself. My true self is what I thought as a child. 
Now again, this is that constant paradox, a conundrum, a stupidity that's emerging from my mouth regarding what I am saying. Because how could I be so stupid to say such a thing? Because aren't I always myself all the time? And didn't I already talk about this when discussing the self a couple episodes ago? And to that, again, I ask, are you actually yourself, your true self? Now, by now, I'm hoping that many things are starting to connect for you, dear listener, at this point, especially if you've listened this far into the Logos of experience and truth. If your mind, your mental activity, is the fallen or false self, and if you've existed in this conditioned world of mental experience and thought, forced upon you by all external voices and circumstances, shaping and framing your interior world and thus your exterior world as well, and is the reality in which you see and dwell within, then are you actually yourself, your true self? Or are you some type of automaton that has been swept up by the world and are simply going through the motions of life, of living, and are nothing more than a shadow of your truest, inner, deepest, desired self, for you do not know your deepest, desired, truest self. And if you do, you do not know how to follow your deepest, truest self. In modern times, this exists within a question that I was just presented with during a conversation with my wife regarding one of her patients that was going through her social media stuff on her phone during an urgent care office visit while my wife was sewing up some sort of laceration on her body. And this is an internal and personal question, though again, in this day and age, do those that dwell within the social media world even have a concept of this question? And the question is simple. Are you, or is your true self, determined by the thumbs up and likes you get in social media, the personalities that you follow on social media, and the webbed network that surrounds you within this media matrix that exists in your phone and thus exists in your mind as well? Are you, or is your true self, determined by that which is outside of you? Or are you, or is your true self, your truest self, something far more real and deeper than what social media is telling you that you are? So again, it's not like following Pascal's wager, just as following and believing that there is a true self beyond the self that the world tells you that you are, let alone believing in the true self as synonymous with Christ in whose image we are made. Or really, this type of interior search isn't meant for everybody, just as it is meant for everybody. Since there are obviously countless human beings on earth today as in the past that are perfectly blissful dwelling within the ignorance of this internal question that question of whether they are themselves or if the self that they inhabit or exist in currently is a purely conditioned shadow image created and molded by the world outside that somehow infiltrates inside, taking over one's perceptions and thus their vision of the world and that the personality that they use to move about and live and function preconditioned in this the conditioned world and worldview is generated and given by the world. Very deep questions, especially in this increasingly shallow-minded world. And hopefully, if you're still listening, you're asking yourself these questions as I speak. So let's complete the examination of Pascal's wager now, using the purely secular terminology of the inner true self, which again, we've already said that even considering or thinking of the true inner self does require a level of thought and belief in such a thing existing within our hearts, mind, and soul. Again, the greatest commandment and the connections between this and so many of the other gospels because if loving God or the true self within requires all your heart, all your mind, all your soul, then loving yourself is the beginning of wisdom just as the wisdom teachings in the Old Testament state. 
So if you believe and behave as if your true self were real, and that you search for your true self, and that the quest of searching for your true self is a valuable endeavor, and if you find it, and by finding it, are contented in your life because of it, because you're doing, thinking, speaking, living, loving, exactly as you'd always imagined and hoped for, truly, and not superficially, and if when you die, there is no God, if there is nothing after this life, nothing supernatural, no heaven, nothing of that sort, then the search for the true self, your own personal and true self, would have yielded its own rewards in life if you again behaved as if your true inner self is a real state of mind and being within you and you had pursued it as if it were real. But if this true inner self is that which is made in the image of God, and since all things are made through the second person of the Trinity, Christ, the Son of God, thus we are made in the image of the Son of God, and that this image that we are of the Son of God is our true self, and the finding of this true self is also the finding of the Son of God, and if we are in the Son of God, recognizing that we are image and a reflection of the Christ, the Son of God, and that by the mere act of this we now dwell somehow with the Son of God, and if with the Son of God we also now dwell with the Father, for the Son is in the Father as the Father is in the Son, and thus we are also made in the image of the Father, and since the Spirit of God is breathed into the made image, we are also made in the image of the Holy Spirit. And if our true self is made in the image of the Trinity of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and if, when we die, because of the search for the true self, also being the search for God dwelling within, if we lived and behaved as if the true self were real, and thus as if God were real, then all that has been spoken of and promised regarding the afterlife will be blessed and given, for the finding of the true self is also the finding of Christ and the Holy Spirit and the Father, one God, eternal, forever. Many streams of what I've spoken about are beginning to converge and merge after this discussion. I hope that you can see it. And... Not that I was trying to use Pascal's wager to influence anybody one way or another, but simply showing more deeply why breaking free of the physical aspect or historical truth of a physical Christ can help one to dive deeper into the mysteries. And like I've stated, it's not that you relinquish the possible historical truth. In fact, I've only seen it and believed in it to greater depths once the greater understanding of it returns after having let it go. The search for the true and pure dark faith through the desert of the soul actually requires this. And I will leave you with that. Until next time. Thank you for listening. They say a picture is worth a thousand words. I have close to a thousand pictures at logosofexperienceandtruth.com under the vision section that show what is perceived by the human mind during a mystical experience. Every culture across the entirety of time has depicted the experience with the same foundational pattern, including science in modernity. Click the link in the episode description or search for logosofexperienceandtruth.com so you can see for yourself and confirm or refute my claims. Please share this podcast with those that are like-minded and click a like on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. Thank you again.